Please rise for the reading of God's word from Ephesians chapter 5, 25 through 33. Hear now God's word. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. Amen. Doctrine and life, ideas and consequences, these things are inseparable. So the idea or the doctrine always has fruit. But the fruit also tells us what the idea or the doctrine is that produced it. So we can look at it on the, on the idea side or we can look at it on the fruit side. But either way, we can see how these ultimately go together. We can tell what you believe by how you live. We can look at your marriage and see what you think of Christ and the church, or whether you think of Christ and the church at all. So your marriage is saying something about Christ and the church. Some will say that they never really think about the theology or doctrine of marriage. And I would say that this goes without saying, and it's obvious that people, certain people don't think about it. The fact that you don't think about it or can't articulate it doesn't mean that you don't have a doctrine of marriage. Let me begin today by acknowledging uh, that throughout this whole series uh, in Ephesians, I have benefited greatly from Dr. Lloyd-Jones' set of commentaries, and certainly on today's topic, I found his writing on this to be very helpful to stimulate my own thinking, and so I want to uh, acknowledge a, a great deal of what I'm going to be presenting here comes from his generating thought in this area. So today we want to look further at the doctrine of the mystical union between Christ and the church. I think sometimes we're a bit afraid of mystery. I remember going to a wedding uh, and the, uh, the pastorette was delivering the service and said uh, to the couple that nothing magic, nothing mystical is happening in this ceremony. And I disagree heartily. Something very mystical happens. Magic, if you will, if we can use that in quotes. Uh, when the pastor says, I now pronounce you husband and wife. In an instant, something happened, something changed. Everything changed, in fact. And we can't put our finger on it. It's, in fact, the couple themselves 
even though they've just been pronounced husband and wife, they're going to now leave and have to go start to figure out what that feels like. And they're going to learn as they go. And it's going to feel a bit odd. And it's going to look different next week and the week after that and ten years down the road. It's always changing and growing, but it's the fact, the reality of it began in that instant with those words. And so, the Apostle's argument is that we cannot truly understand what marriage means until we understand this doctrine of the mystical union with Christ. The mystical union of Christ and the church sheds light on the union between the husband and the wife. Likewise, the mystical union between the husband and wife sheds another kind of light on the union between Christ and the church. Human analogy helps us understand divine truth, but it is divine truth, revealed truth, that enables us to understand everything else. Now, Paul tells us up front that this this unity, this union, is a great mystery. And so, as is always the case, when we are dealing with understanding and knowing God, God is infinite and we're finite, and so we bump into mystery rather quickly, whatever the subject is. And I like to always say, just metaphorically, kind of, uh, uh, you get to ask three more questions and then you have to put your hand over your mouth. God hasn't told us everything, but he's told us a lot. And it's our job to listen and to discover and find out what he's told us. As God said in Isaiah, my thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways. They are as far apart as the heavens are from the earth. My ways higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So when God speaks, when God reveals, when he pulls the curtain back, when he gives us a peek, It's a blessing for us to be given understanding into things that we could not have ever known on our own. The fact that it is a mystery does not mean that we cannot have any understanding of it, but that it is not easily known or perhaps not fully known. However, we speak... Uh, we speak wisdom. Or, in fact, I'm going to go ahead and just read from 1 Corinthians 2, a longer passage here. Because I think when it comes to this subject of marriage, Christian marriage, and the fact that this is a mystery, I think it fits very clearly here into this, this familiar passage from 1 Corinthians 2, starting in verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature... Yet not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. There's a reference to our culture and what they think about marriage, or the Supreme Court, right? But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would, have, would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the thing which God has prepared for those who love him. I'm going to pause here and continue in a moment. You, know, you see what he's being said? 
God has shown you some things, revealed things that not everybody gets to see. You're special. You're his children. He's called you in to his office. And he says, I want to show you something. And he opens his desk and he pulls out his book. He says, I want to show you something that nobody else sees. I'm going to show you. And it's glorious. And it is going to change your life. And it's going to make things so much better when you see this and when you understand this. And so he goes on. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of, of for what man knows the things of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, no one knows the things of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things which have been freely given to us by God. Remember Deuteronomy 29.29 says that the things revealed belong to you and your sons forever, but that some of the things are hidden. So God, again, God hasn't told us everything, but he's told us a lot. And when we come to this issue of Christ and the church and marriage, we're going to see that God in his word, God by his spirit, has revealed inside knowledge, if you will, special knowledge about marriage. These, continuing in 1 Corinthians, these things we also speak, not in words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things. Yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. We don't need to have our tail between our legs here. When the world is telling us what to think about marriage, they don't know what they're talking about. It's the blind leading the blind. We do. He says here, those who are spiritual will be judged by no one. Don't be intimidated by what they're saying. God himself has revealed the truth in many areas, but particularly about marriage. This is a spiritual truth, and therefore it can only be understood by the, with the aid of the Holy Spirit. Now, just an aside here, the Latin translation of the word mystery was sacramentum. And the Roman Catholic application of the word sacrament then became applied to marriage as one of the seven sacraments. So they have interpreted this to say this, instead of this is a great mystery, marriage, they'd say this is a great sacrament. And thus marriage became one of its seven sacraments. And since it's a sacrament, marriage can only be performed by a priest. But Paul says clearly, not that, he says Clearly, this he speaks concerning Christ and the church. He's not talking about human marriage. And he's certainly not talking about it as a sacrament. He says the great mystery has to do with Christ and the church. Showing that the whole passage, what the whole passage, all of Ephesians, has already shown. 
Paul says that this relationship between Christ and the church is a great mystery and that we will need what he has already called for in chapter 1. Verse 17 and 18. That the, remember he was praying for the Ephesians. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. We don't read the Bible like we read any other book. It's not like any other book. This is the God-breathed, infallible, authoritative Word of God. This is where we go to find out what marriage is all about. Without this, we face at least three dangers. The first is, because it's, we're told it's a mystery, we won't consider it at all. I think a lot of Christians just run into anything that's difficult in the Bible and they zoom past it. We're looking for a little devotional verse, something to get us through the day, something to make us feel good, something that's simple and easy. I don't want to be bogged down by all this difficult stuff. And because it's difficult, a difficult concept, many simply won't bother with it and they move on. Remember in Hebrews, it says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, For he is a babe, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age, to the mature. You will never understand your own marriage unless you try to understand this. This is why God gave it to us. He wasn't just trying to fill pages. Second, we might be tempted to try and remove or diminish the mystery. This can be done by simply reducing it down to a mere matter of general likeness or illustration. Some say uh, Paul is just using hyperbole of language here. But that would ignore the fact that Paul says it's a great mystery. And so we must not turn the great mystery into something ordinary. The third danger is trying to work out the mystery in too much detail so that no mystery is left. To say this is a great mystery is not to say that we can understand it all. Neither is it to say we can't understand understand it at all. So we can understand some. We can understand however much God has revealed. And perhaps as we grow and mature and we come back and we think about it some more, as we become more mature, we're able to see more. That's what's glorious to me. One of the many things that's glorious about the Bible is through a lifetime of reading it, we come back to it and you say, wow, that, I haven't seen that before. I hadn't thought about that before. I read that a hundred times and now, now I see something else. Because God, as we grow and mature, we're able by His grace and with His Spirit, to grow in our understanding. But it doesn't mean that we do understand it perfectly and completely. There will likely continue to be aspects of it that are beyond our finitude. And so it will always be a mystery. So what is being taught about the mystical relationship between Christ and the church? First, he tells us that the church is the body of Christ. And so in verse 28 here, he says what? So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. 
Verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Verse 30, for we are members of his body. And we're going to be talking about one flesh here, husband and wife, one body. He is emphasizing that the relationship between husband and wife is not merely external. There is an external relationship, but there is much, much more than that. The essential thing is not just that two people live together. Isn't that all it takes? Two people love each other, just live together? Isn't that enough? There's something much, much deeper. The church is really a part of Christ. Now, I've talked about this a number of times over the years, but I want to pause on this because this is, it's easy to go past this and not let it soak in. Church is not just an organization. It's not just, it's not just an external relationship. I've joined the church. I'm always amazed at how people can join a church, even be in the church for years, even hear these kind of teachings, and then when they get ready to leave, they treat it. They treat the church like it's leaving, you know, the Lions Club or something. Oh well, we're done with that. The church, and I don't mean some some uh, invisible thing that nobody can put their hand on. I mean the thing you're sitting in right now. This group of people who you have taken covenant with. The church with real flesh and blood people, brothers and sisters in Christ, is part of Christ. We, you, we represent Christ to the world. We are Christ to the world. He's the head, and we're the body, and we're a unity. The church is part of Christ. The individual parts are members of the body, and the head is the chief part. So Christ is the head of the church, and as Paul put it at the end of chapter 1, verse 22 and 23, and he put all things under his feet, that is, the Father put all things under Christ's feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, and then listen, which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all and all. Now, there's a lot of mystery here. You, we, are members of the body of Jesus Christ. We're attached organically, incorporated. And we, this is, this is an amazing statement. We're going to unpack this a little bit. We are the fullness. Then say he is our fullness. We are the fullness of him who fills all in all. The first principle is critical to our understanding the mystical union. He goes even further by adding this statement in verse 30. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Now we're getting pretty particular. Here is the very heart of the mystery. The essential thing about a body is its organic unity. 
This is not a reference, as some have suggested, to the incarnation where Jesus has taken our flesh and our bones. That's true, but that's not what this is talking about. It's the other way around. What he says is that we take his flesh and bones. Misinterpretations of this text have been used to support both the Roman Catholic doctrine of transubstantiation and the Lutheran doctrine of consubstantiation, which argue that in some way, as we consume the communion bread and wine, we are partaking of the glorified body of Christ, and and in that you become part of him. In order to arrive at such conclusions, I think the context has to be ignored. Because Paul is clearly drawing from Genesis 2. He quotes from Genesis. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So God completed Adam by doing what? By taking a woman out of his side And giving her to him. Genesis 2, 21 and 22. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam. Like death. And he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. So the woman is taken out of man, out of his flesh and bones. Woman is made at the beginning by an operation performed by God upon Adam. How does the church come into being? As a result of an operation performed by God upon the second Adam. A deep sleep fell upon each atom, and a woman was taken from them. From the bleeding side of Adam and the bleeding side of Christ. As it is true to say of the woman that she was taken out of the side of man, out of the very his very substance, his very flesh and bones, so too the church is taken out of Christ, and we are part of him, members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And so now he continues his argument in verse 28 and 29. So, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. You see the back and forth, the comparison, the analogy, the likeness. This body is part of the man. When he pays attention to this body, he pays attention to himself. What he does for his body, he does for himself. Jesus is the creator of a new humanity. Our first humanity started with the first Adam. The new humanity started with the second Adam, Jesus, and we share that. We are partakers of that. We derive our life and our being from him, 
and we are truly parts of him. Paul then says, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. And again, we can only understand this by going back to Genesis 2.24. Again, quoting from there, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to the wife, and the two become one flesh. The expression concerning one flesh applies to the relationship between Christ and the church as well as the relationship between the husband and the wife. Herein is a big part of the mystery. In one sense, we are two, but in another sense, we're not. Adam was incomplete without Eve. Now, to me, as we draw this to a head here, this is very interesting. Adam, in some sense, was incomplete without Eve. And the creation of Eve made up for this. So in some sense, Eve makes up for makes up the fullness of Adam. She makes up for what's lacking in him. Paul says the same thing. Again, here we are to the mystery. Paul says the same thing about Christ and the church. The church is the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 2, 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is that which makes up this fullness of Christ. It's like, Pastor Booth, you're getting into some dangerous territory here. How is Christ? Christ isn't complete. Christ is not full. The Lord Jesus Christ, as the eternal Son of God, is perfect and complete and has always been so from all eternity. Colossians 2.9 For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He has always been co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. There is no lack. There is nothing to make up. There is no fullness which is lacking. But, as a mediator, the mediator, Christ is not full or complete without the church. Now this is the most glorious mystery of all. Jesus Christ as mediator will not be full and complete until every soul has been gathered in for whom he died. The fullness of the Gentiles and all of Israel. The Lord Jesus Christ left his Father and came into the world for his bride. As a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife, so too he left his home in glory to seek and to save his bride by making her his. He loved her and gave himself for her. Husbands, 
Again, a high bar. So also are we to love our wives in that way, with that magnitude, with that understanding that we are one, not two. We are one. We are joined tighter uh, as though we were one person. That is us in Christ. We are united to Christ. We died with him. We'll be raised with him. We are completely united to him. There's a lot to think about here. I'd urge you to go back and read this section again and think about it. Because the mystery is not there. The mystery has been uncovered. He's pulled back this cover for us to see and to begin to grasp. And I think what we'll do is we grow as Christians, but especially when we ultimately see him as he is, as John talks about. We shall be like him. We'll see him just as he is, and we will be like him. And then we'll have a full perception of just how glorious this is. But we need to get busy working on our marriages to make sure that we, as the new humanity, as those who are united to Christ, begin to reflect to the world, to show the world what that looks like in our own marriages. Let's pray. Father of glorious mysteries, we are grateful for the wonder of your work of salvation that unites us to Christ and makes us members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. Fill us with an awareness of who we are in Christ and help us to live accordingly. Especially bless husbands in representing the love of Christ as they give themselves for their wives and help the wives to show respect to their husbands even as the church bows before the Lord Jesus Christ. May the world see us and thereby see Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revelation 19, verses 5 through 9. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, as the sound of many waters and as the sound of many thunderings, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, Right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. We have been called... To the marriage supper of the Lamb. And therefore, we are blessed. As the bride of Christ, he has lifted us up, cleaned us up, dressed us up, and has glorified us. And here we are. Cinderella has nothing on our story. From rags to riches. How 
could we possibly be glum as we approach this table? This is the appetizer for the marriage feast. The eternal marriage feast. As we come to this table, we remember what he did to get us, to win us, to woo us, to rescue us. He loved us and gave himself for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you also for the faithful saints who have gone, who have gone before us and guarded and delivered this gospel to us who by their lives and testimonies were faithful to their calling, we rejoice in your kind providence which brought the good news to our ears and for the Holy Spirit who opened our hearts to receive so great a salvation. Help us now to live with a view of our mission and to raise our children accordingly with right thinking and with hearts that love the way of the Lord, that we might embrace your mission and transmit that mission to our children and our children's children so that we might be found standing with all the faithful as we proclaim the good news to all men everywhere. Bless now our feast and our rest. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy, because you defend them. Let those also who love your name be joyful in you. For you, O Lord, will bless the righteous. With favor you shall surround him as with a shield. Amen. Amen.